0: This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised.
1: You lost all constitutional rights the moment you walked through that door. When the judge sat down there, I said, you to 10 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. You walked through that door, you was a number. And the inmate understood that.
0: If you're out there, there's in here, just lay down the road. Those inmates that were here in the institution during an execution, it had an impression on them that maybe I was still with them and to some extent, maybe they don't think about it anymore, but it, it had a, an impression on them, I'm sure. They wouldn't let me out until I get back that stuff. <laughs> Seven months later, i give it back to them. One of the one of the problems we ran into is you had five or six guys that were sitting in a place smoking and joking and drinking coffee. Pretty quick, they'd hatched a plan and there to get under your skin some
2: way or, or try to figure a way out. Well, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Behind Gray Walls a podcast about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women who lived, worked, and were incarcerated here. My name Anthony. I'm chatting with Sky down in Texas. Hey, Sky.
0: Hello. How are
2: you? Good, good. Excited for our guest today. Yes.
0: Today we have a special guest, the author of Selling Sex in the Silver Valley, A Business Doing Pleasure, which is an incredible title. Um, we have Dr. Heather Branstetter today. Um, so Dr. Brandstetter graduated with a BA in English and Philosophy from the University of Idaho before completing a PhD in Rhetoric, Writing, and Cultural Studies at the University of North Carolina. She taught at the University of Idaho, University of North Carolina and Wake Forest University and was assistant professor of rhetoric and writing at the Virginia Military Institute, which I love. That's as as a current Ph.D. student, that is a dream CV. So um, she now lives in Wallace, Idaho, and serves as the executive director of the Historic Wallace Preservation Society and works as a school counselor in the Mullen School District. So, Heather, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Yes, we're so excited. Um, So I guess um, we'll start with uh, an opening question and then maybe we'll get into uh, your book a little bit. So what was it like growing up in the Silver Valley?
1: Oh, uh, so I grew up in the 80s and 90s. I graduated in 99. At that time, uh, we were pretty economically depressed here. Mm -hmm. We had just undergone the closure of the Bunker Hill mine in Kellogg. Mm. And that was a huge employer. And uh, we basically were suffering through all of the mines shutting down, except for the two that are currently left to this day. And so all my friends moved away in um, fourth and fifth grade, which was also around the time that the FBI came in and raided the valley. They put um, two agents in every single bar in Shoshone County and a couple in Cooney County that they weren't supposed to. And they took away the uh, illegal illicit gambling that we had happening at that time. And that was about two weeks after our last brothel shut down. And there was some suspicion on the timing there. So probably the FBI raid had something to do with that last house shutting down, even though current day residents may deny that. Um, and then uh, we kind of shifted into a tourism industry. And so now uh, the Silver Valley and um, Wallace in particular, Kellogg in particular are the two kind of hubs there, sort of shifting towards summer recreation and um, winter recreation more now. Um, and we've seen a large influx of uh, new people. There's a huge number of people who are moving into Coeur d'Alene next door. And um, just over the pass, it's about 45, 50 minutes away. And so then um, when those people can't find housing fast enough or uh, affordable enough, then they're coming over here to this side of the, of the valley.
0: And I think both Anthony and I have been part of that that tourism that the towns are are aiming for. And and I my me and my family had such a good time last summer. So really interesting um, place up there. So was that that experience of the fact that you you know grew up at this time that the mines are closing down and the FBI is coming in? Is that what inspired you to start looking into this as um, as a as an academic project, or um, was it were there something else that you were originally focusing on in your studies?
1: I was looking around for a dissertation project in about 2009, and I really wanted to focus on how the women in Wallace's history were influential in uh, the Valley's economy and in how they are remembered. So there's a large, uh, I guess, area, field of study in rhetoric that is public memory Um, and historiography basically the idea is that history itself is a persuasive effort and so if um if we're telling stories a certain way that's for a certain reason and I wanted to learn a little bit more about this part of history that I'd only heard about through oral history and in part also my own memory um which you know it turns out is quite um unreliable. (laughs) And so I went into the mining museum here in Wallace in 2009 and asked around about the labor wars, um, illegal gambling, and the brothels and sort of was trying to figure out what's out there, what's in our, what kind of research and material that we have already and what we would need. Um, Trying to just sort of figure out if I had enough material to make this into a dissertation project Um, at that time, there really wasn't very much written or available about the history of sex work here. And so uh, my committee kind of dissuaded me and told me to maybe work on a different project that would be closer to where I was going to school. And that actually had like a lot of material to work with. But I couldn't really get this project out of my head. And so the mining museum director said that he'd give me some grant money if I, you know, came up over, um, came back to Wallace for the summer, which I was doing anyway, really. Um, and, uh, he said that I should conduct some oral histories and see what I can dig up because they have a lot of people come into the mining museum asking about the brothels and that Bordello history because in part because of the Oasis Bordello Museum, um, which I'm happy to announce is going to open back up this summer. Oh, okay. um, big surprise. We kind of thought it was going to be closed for forever. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but my, um, my half cousin Lee is going to take it over and uh, she's going to run it. So it's oh, pretty that's exciting. So great. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. My
0: dad always <laughs> listens. So dad, we have to go back to Wallace. Cause that is one thing that we missed last year uh, was, was that <laughs> that museum and I was so bummed but
1: yeah really interesting. you know the um the cool thing about um what happened with the project was that my finished product isn't an academic published work um and that's because I wanted it to serve um the purpose of being accessible for the general public not having not being like super expensive and if I would have if I would have turned it into my dissertation, it would have been a product of like my committee members and it probably would not have been what I wanted it to be, um, which this, um, what I was able to publish really is. So the first two parts go into the more um, written historic record that we have. And then the third part is pretty much so like I didn't edit the oral histories very much at all. I wanted the readers to get a sense of storytelling here in the Silver Valley And from, um, to understand how the rhythm of people's um, storytelling here in Wallace, uh, people who grew up here. um, And so that was, so that was what I did for the third part. And I guarantee I would not have been allowed, (laughs) in quote unquote, to do that for like my first major book project. And if I um, had remained in higher education and made this an academic pursuit, I guess. I did include in my bibliography and my notes, extensive (laughs) citations, because I did actually go about this in the way that one would go about it if they were going to make it into an academic book. I just tried to put it in different language. And I think people are starting to do that a little bit more in um, higher ed right now. They're kind of starting to see that that old model is unsustainable, but, but that was one, I guess, unexpected surprise of like not having this be my dissertation project.
2: It's such a fascinating subject and you do such a good job of making it so informative and just interesting. And you, you include a lot of that language of the time periods from like newspaper articles and things, which I, I just love. That's something that we try to do too. We try to take that old language and bring it into our vernacular. I was wondering about your collection of oral histories, like how how did it, you had, what, over 90 oral histories you collected for this project? How did you go about that? Were Did you have a, a leaflet of people to interview, or did it just kind of one after the other? Or?
1: In terms of the oral history methodology, I did turn that into an academic article, and I even won an award for it, which I'm pretty oh, proud of. Um, but uh, it's... Um, of uh, took some of of the currently available methodologies for um, qualitative research and oral history and I sort of blended them together. Um, In Wallace, especially because we went through our FBI raid um, and because we have a history of illegal yet pretty open secret kind of activity, um, people were very protective of that history and Um, you know, like they'd show me some photos and they'd be like, but you can't take a picture of them. You can't put them in your book or they'd, you know, talk about the women, but then they'd be like, you can't tell that story. Um, and so it was, um, it was definitely a project that I wouldn't have been able to do had I not been born and raised here because even having been born and raised here and, uh, people were still, um, like very reluctant to share certain aspects of the past related to sex work here um but that said uh i started with uh people who had been referred to me by like my father by the mining museum director um by locals around town who were like oh you know dick Karen knows everything about this because he's wanted to write a book about it for forever and just never really got around to it Um, and then they call it um snowball method uh so you kind of like get referred to one person from another person from another person and then you kind of keep keep going and then there were some some records that I found too like police records that had some names in them so um followed up followed up on that too but but mostly it was um from referrals from other from other people because of Like personal connections. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure that uh, I left some people out who would have been excellent interviews. And I, after the book was done, kind of continued on. So I've like, as of now have done more than a hundred interviews. And then I started publishing some of this stuff on my blog and then people started writing in there also. So it maybe messed up a little bit, maybe contaminated what people would, were going to tell me because they like had read on the blog, certain things, but, um, uh, but other people reached out to me who I probably would not have been able to talk to otherwise. So also there was, um, some all-class reunions, some high school, all-class reunions. So I kind of just wandered around and talked to people there or like different festivals in town. I would always just kind of go out and be like, Hey, you want to chat with me? <laughs> go down to the bar, <laughs> uh, see, um, see if the people at, uh, the bar during the day <laughs> would talk to me. Um, cause there was quite an overlap there between people who bartended and people who were maids up in the houses and people who were friends with, uh, with the women who worked up there.
2: Oh, so fascinating.
1: Yeah. That's um, very cool. Who,
2: who were the subjects? Did, did you get a mix of, of visitors like John's the sex workers themselves? Who were your subject ranges?
1: Yeah, I got a mixture for sure. I tried to kind of cover my bases. I wasn't able to get any of the sex workers to talk with me on the record, however. So that was really a shortcoming of the book. If I was going to criticize any aspect of it, that would be the part. But um, because there's still there's still a few women who are alive and uh, and available, but they just didn't want to go revisit that aspect of their past Which also indicates, you know, there was definitely some unpleasantry about it. There is a lot of stigma still associated with sex work and was also here in Wallace, even though most of the people were accepting of it. There was definitely, it needed to be in its place uh, in order for people to be willing to accept it. Um, I talked to the son of one of the madams. That was a really interesting interview. He was, he was quite, he's quite old now. <laughs> and so, um, and his wife also knew Ginger pretty well too. And so they kind of like did a double interview with me. I talked to a lot of the Johns and then in order to get kind of the insider understanding of how things worked in the houses, I talked to some of the maids who worked up there too. And they told some great and colorful stories. <laughs> That's very cool. I'm, I'm
0: interested, uh, you mentioned earlier the the role that your memory had in, in thinking about this and how you found that that was actually quite faulty. And I know that a lot of the the discourse currently around oral history, which, of course, in, in academic history is like really being pushed as something that we should be using more often. But then, of course, the question comes up about memory and how faulty it can be. So what kind of, I guess, maybe role did that play as you were talking to people and how did their memory seem to hold up against maybe someone else's memory of a similar event or the same event and and how do you as, as an as, as someone who's writing about this, how do you uh, you know work around that and, and uh, deal with that sort of complication that comes with doing oral history?
1: I found that when I had people, in this, in the space that we were discussing. So like if I was able to walk with people down Cedar street, for example, or go up into the Lux rooms with someone, um, their memory was very vivid and they were able to access certain stories or I guess individual memories that they weren't able to tell me before. Or if I had them kind of like think back and picture the space. So there was a real solid connection with the spatial element of it and their um, experience as they remembered it. As far as (laughs) different people kind of conflicting with each other about their memory that I found happened a lot more, the more recent into the history that we got, which surprised me. So for example, the closer that we got to the FBI raid, the, um, the more, uh, conflict, it seemed um, that there was between people's memories. And I suspect that that was a result of just having the collective community-based memory not being solidified around that. And so those, um, those stories, the narrative overall is still in flux and um, still up in the air. And I think that that explains a lot of it. Whereas when you go a little bit further back, it's more concretized. People remember things a certain way because of the stories that they've told each other about that. And there's sort of been this um, rising to the top of of what the acceptable or I guess correct or true history was. So that was interesting. I mean. When we look into memory, we we know that like the way that the brain works when it accesses memories is that it will relive the experience, and so the more often that you access a particular memory, the less uh, true I guess it is. And so, I wonder also, you know, what role that that played in like um, solidifying that more uh, distant past. I think in a way, this, the more concrete and solid that, that community memory gets, the in a way, I guess, further from the truth, it becomes as well, which is sort of strange. But um, one thing that I tried to do was test oral history against written history. So if someone told me something, I would try and go find that in the historic record. Um, I found a few court cases. Um so there was a famous story about this uh, lawyer who went up to the brothel and he had to testify in court about it. And And his wife was apparently quite upset about this. And it was just kind of a story that everyone told around town. And it was told pretty similar to the actual truth of it. but um, But it was kind of interesting to hear the different versions of that story and then like read the actual court transcript that one of my research participants gave me <laughs> he saved it and, um, and offered it up as as a something to sort of like be like okay here's the real story but even that was a you know a retelling in court there were a lot of legal documents from the police records And I unfortunately couldn't find like a bunch of details in there, but I found like a ton of um, records of the women who worked in the houses. And I would, I'd like to go further with that in another project to kind of, I guess, figure out how to really show who these women were and kind of bring them to life. Because I feel like that's a part of the book that I also would, would like to have developed more. And these, the police files really show some of that stuff. Like there's quite a bit of information on some of these women. And I tried to like balance, you know, protecting their privacy with, uh, you know, with bringing them to life and respecting their memory in that way. But as the further that we get from, um, from that past then, and the more comfortable that people are going to be with like learning more about these specific women who worked up there. So So probably in the future, that'll be something I want to pursue. I'd also like to pursue in the future, the least reliable aspect of people's memories, which was the FBI raid. So people have this competing story that they tell about the raid. Um, Some people say that it was not the FBI that stopped the houses, um, that it was uh, the economy. They say the houses were on their way out anyway, because there wasn't enough money to support it in the economy. I don't, I mean, locally in some ways, yes, that was true because, um, people, because the minors were moving out. And so my friends, all the ones who had minor fathers, you know, most of them moved away, not all of them, but many, but people were still coming in. We had truckers stopping in. We had people coming down from Canada. We had college kids coming over from like Gonzaga Um, University of Montana coming up from University of Idaho. So there was still quite a bit of um, sex tourism, I guess, uh, from the region. So I think that that was continuing to support at least the last house that was left. We probably probably didn't have, you know, enough of an economy to support all, you know, all five houses, for example, Mm -hmm. that had been active from like World War II until 1988. But but we probably still would have kept going. And then another story that people say is that the uh, old, old madams who ran it in a classy way, according to, you know, their certain rules that those madams, they retired or, or passed. And so there was nobody to really replace them and to do the job in the way that they had done it to run the houses in the way that they ran it. And so they say that, that that was why the house is shut down. And then there's other people who say that the reason why the house is shut down was because of the AIDS epidemic. And I think that that could have influenced it quite a bit as well. Um, One woman told me that the the men didn't like having to wear condoms and that they were just kind of, everybody was just kind of scared. I remember learning about AIDS and HIV in school when I was in third grade and being scared about it. And I don't know that other third graders had that experience. (laughs) That was just kind of like part of, you know, education here, because, you know, that was part of our uh, reality here was people were talking about it. So I do think that probably all of those things influenced the closure. But had the FBI maybe not come to town, there probably still would have been one house that would have stayed open, at least um, that was continuing to. And there were women who were working privately um, out of their houses after that. Um, I had uh, one of my classmates wrote me to say that that was what her mom did. And that that explained a lot of things that happened um, in school uh, where she was like kind of gone all the time. And she had a a pretty unstable home life because of that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I kind of want to explore that a little further, maybe in a whole book, maybe in an article. I don't, I don't exactly know. I kind of, I put my writing kind of on pause because I had to go back to school again and get another master's degree for my school counseling job. And then I was sort of like, well, I'm feeling like burned out on everything. So I'm just going to kind of take some time off. So that's what I've been doing. I I do have um, some research that I've been gathering on toward the idea of of writing about the FBI raid um, period and maybe connecting it also to um, the historic intervention of the federal government, there was another raid during Prohibition in 1929, right after the stock market collapsed. Um, and then there was another raid also. Well, um, I guess it wasn't a raid technically. It was more just like martial law during the mining labor wars. Yeah. Um, and so kind of connecting all three of those, because that um, Prohibition raid had a lot in common with the FBI raid that happened in 1991. So the the same I mean, it was like the same lines of argument were used to justify it. The same lines of argument were used to defend what we were doing here. And additionally, it was seen as overkill. Like, why was the federal government so interested and so heavy handed about this? This wasn't really that big of a deal. We're just a tiny little town on I-90. <laughs> but-
2: oh, you're the center of the universe, though. Yeah. I- <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah. Well, it's funny. Yeah. Wallace has a lot of like, you know, superlatives, you know, the, the silver capital of the world, the center of the universe, (laughs) the most violent, uh, mining labor wars. Um, and then also the, um, the biggest federal raid in the Rocky mountain region. (laughs) (laughs) So Interesting.
0: Um, so let's get maybe into the meat of your book. I, I'm so like, I honestly can talk to you all day. I think this is all so, so interesting. Oh, interesting. Um, so we've talked a little bit about the history of, of Wallace, but of course, it's been super brief on the podcast before. Could you give us sort of just a brief timeline of um, what your book covers, and then maybe talk about the role that brothels played in the mining towns uh, in the region?
1: So I started in 1884, which was when Wallace was first formed up. It was a cedar swamp then, and things were very wild west at that time. And the idea of um, brothels and sex work in the west um, was that the men needed to have uh, something to keep them working and to keep them being happy, and they naturally, I guess, also just kind of, um, developed an economy around sex because it was scarce. So there weren't women, enough women around for the men to be, you know, married to and to have a traditional relationship with. And yet they still had this need for, uh, companionship, and for sexual release that was not being met. And so there were women who were willing to step in and address that need. And for a lot of money, in part because of the stigma around the profession, and and in part because of the danger involved in it. And there were lots of women who would just kind of set up shop in a little cabin around town, or some, or cribs, they would rent these just like one room places Those were very undesirable. If you were a woman, that was a very poor condition to work in, and it was very like wham bam, thank you ma'am, very quick, not intimate at all. Um, Whereas if you went to one of the um, the higher class houses, you could have a more intimate experience. Gracie Edwards ran this um, the Star, very high class. This was in 1890, so this was still very early on in the mining camp days and She had, you know, everything just to the nines, you know, everything would have just been very, um, you know, chandeliers and velvet and that sort of thing. So, um, so that was one of the fancier places. So things were generally pretty positive for the women during this time in the earliest days. Um, But then toward the turn of the century, the men started kind of taking over the industry a little bit more. And it, of course, depended on. Who you were involved with um, in the early days but for the most part the women were able to be pretty in control of their own their own work but then and in the early 1900s the men started to take over and then when um Theodore roosevelt came to town they used that as an excuse to sort of push the women into a particular section of town that they then made into the red light district and in the process, they were forced to rent from these um, saloon men, and so during that move that pushed them kind of a little more out of sight out of mind, even though it was still downtown, but just so everyone was kind of in the same place, um, during that move to like clean up Wallace, quote unquote, they a lot of the women's power got taken away. and then that was when things kind of went a little more downhill for the women who worked in the industry. And then the dance halls popped up. The dance hall environment was notoriously bad for women. A lot of women um, tried to kill themselves, uh, were drugged up all the time just kind of to deal with the environment. Yeah, it was, it was not a positive thing. And then during that time also, there was a huge nationwide uh, sex trafficking panic. And I'm sure that some of it was legitimate. I'm sure that some of it was actually happening. But then there was another aspect of it where if a woman had gone into sex work and then wanted to get out of it because of the stigma, there were very few routes to exiting the industry and like being legit, marrying, whatever. Um, And so that would be when they would say, well, I wasn't doing that of my own free will. So there was kind of a mixture there of actual sex trafficking where they were taking advantage of it, especially immigrant women that happened here in Wallace. Effie Rogan was convicted, I think twice. She was at least accused twice. I can't remember if she was convicted twice, but um, so Effie Rogan was one of our madams who was definitely sex trafficking. And it seems that she she ran one of these dance halls, and it seems that she was working with some men to do this, and she was not very good per she was not a very good person. <laughs> she looks she looks astounding. She just looks like so beautiful in these pictures. We have a couple of really amazing pictures of her from the Barnard Stockbridge collection. So she was one of them. There was also a woman who uh I found I found a narrative of this woman who worked over by the depot and ran a boarding house there. And she was helping this man bring a woman in um, to try and manipulate her into the industry as well. So they passed the man act nationally. It's a federal law and that law has a lot of flaws in it. It prevents the transport of women across state lines for immoral purposes is what it says. <laughs> it's just like, oh that thing needs to be fixed because it's from 1910 and it's still in the books. I mean, at least it was the last time I looked that was in the later years. That was a problem for Wallace because a lot of women would kind of would fly in from Spokane or they would come over state lines. And, or if you were just friends with someone that was working in the industry, then you could be convicted of trafficking as well. So that law came about because of the trafficking panic that arose during this time. And nationally, sex work was under attack people were starting to catch on to public health and started portraying uh red light districts as these havens for disease and um venereal disease was sort of seen as a pretty I mean, it was a pretty bad thing before uh, penicillin came along it was i mean it was a big problem and then as we get in toward world war ii the nation had a had a reason or justification to shut down all the red light districts across the nation because the men needed to be fit to fight is was the um, propaganda there was a huge propaganda campaign against sex work that went out across the country and that was when most of the big cities red light districts shut down or what really happened was they went underground and that didn't happen out west as much so mining towns like in nevada like here in Wallace, in Montana, um, in Washington, logging camps as well. They all continued to have red light districts that were pretty above board, even though they kind of had to moderate how things were done. And the military had this list of like towns that were off limits, um, and Wallace was of course one of them. <laughs> and one of the uh, one of the military guys explained to me, he goes, "Yeah, that was kind of backfired on him because you were telling them exactly where to go." <laughs> so, oh, my. But <laughs> um and um uh, then um during prohibition it's a little harder to find where the houses were they sort of spread out again a little bit like they did earlier in the mining camp days so there was a place called the metropolitan hotel that was next door to the post office the building doesn't exist anymore but there was apparently one there and there were women kind of working out of houses at that time too and then um and then finally during world war to, we had all these women who had gone to work in the factories and doing shipbuilding and, you know, the Rosie the Riveter story, and that provided economic opportunity for women who didn't have uh, good opportunities. Otherwise, um, these were finally good paying jobs. So before this time, if you were working in sex work, it was probably because you didn't have any other options. And your family situation had somehow become disrupted. So I want to talk about trafficking, being like working against your will. Well, they weren't exactly working against their will, but there was some element of economic coercion there. But then when World War II came around, all of a sudden they had legitimate employment opportunity. And so they did that. They took those opportunities. And then when um, World War II ended, they wanted to continue to live in the manner that they'd become accustomed to. And so a lot of those women then ended up going into sex work or returning to it. If the, you know, the Rosie the Riveter factory and um, and war effort work um, had just been, you know, something that they turned to instead of sex work. So then they they returned to working in the industry or they Started working in the industry because then, because there was a lot of demand for it at that time as well. Penicillin came along and kind of helped alleviate the problems of sexually transmitted infections.
2: It seems like it was always kind of outlawed, but how was it allowed to happen for so long?
1: Yeah, that was one of my major research questions, Mm -hmm. especially once you get past World War II, because at that time, you know, we had these strong family values that were sort of a part of the national culture. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we were all supposed to get back to making babies and having, you know, this nuclear family. And then there were a lot of policies put in place to support that too. And so here, here in Wallace, that was the case. There was a very upstanding community. Uh, there were plenty of people who lived like that, but then There was just sort of this other side where the miners were able to have their own needs being met. And in mining towns and logging towns, I think part of the reason why it lasted so long was because brothels became a part of our collective identity. People began to see mining towns as just needing to have sex work. Logging towns needed to have sex work. It was just sort of a requirement for that kind of a town. And so you see newspaper articles into the 80s that talk about how a mining town needs brothels. Those are the headlines. And so I think that that was a big part of why it lasted so long um, and why it continues to uh, last in Nevada. Probably the other reason why it continues to last in Nevada is because there's no other places in the U.S. where people can go to legally have to purchase um, sexual activities. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the other thing that happened was the women, and this was this was what I was really um, kind of trying to explain in the book and in my research, and j- like more broadly here is that the women were persuasive and were able to know what it was that the community needed to hear in order to continue to accept it. So anytime there was an argument against the continued presence of sex work, they would come up with a really good counter argument. And then they'd circulate it among it um, throughout through town in, in gossip and small talk. And and then people would repeat it in stories that they would tell. And so that was kind of how the community uh morality came about. And that, you know, I mean this is kind of how it works in a small town, right? People just kind of talk and they develop these common they call them commonplaces and rhetoric. So these ideas they get sort of have salience that are um the most persuasive. Those ones will sort of continue to be repeated, and then the ones that aren't won't. And so when people said in the 50s and 60s that the houses were bad for families the madams would say well we keep more marriages together than the clergy yeah. and yeah <laughs> and they they would um they would say like we need to have these around so that the, these men have a place to go in the in those days um in like between you know 1910 1925 when they were when there was a lot of concern about sexually transmitted infection, that was when the women would say, well, we're going to get checked out by a doctor uh, once a week. We'll be, we'll be checked out by doctors and we'll, we'll keep a clean house here. And so when they were accused of being quote unquote dirty, they played up the idea that they were clean. So, and, and they made sure to have these doctor's checks be a big part of what people knew about how the houses were operated. Mm-hmm. They made sure that there was not organized crime involved at least in a very hands-on way here in town Um, some of the women were associated with organized crime but they tried the sheriff's department tried really hard to keep those women from working here and tried to do what they could to to like basically kick them out of town if they if they were associated with organized crime because that was something that the community would not have accepted they were not allowed to solicit on the streets because the idea was that the men would be uncomfortable, like running into someone on if they were like walking around and if they were with their wife, (laughs) for example, or, um, or their girlfriend or whoever. And so the women weren't out and about very much. They, they mostly stayed within the walls of the brothels. And so that was that was something that was it was good in a way for the women because they were safe. They were safer in a brothel situation than they were in a street situation, um, or like even a you know sketchy massage parlor or whatever. But in a way, it also made it quite lonely. So they weren't really seen out on the streets unless they were going to their to the Western Union to, you know, send money somewhere. A lot of these women had kids. they had families of their own. And they were providing for them, and that was the case even after women were able to have more jobs after World War II. So, because they were still doing sex work instead of those clerical jobs for the money, mm-hmm. especially if they had um, a family to take care of, many women worked part time um, in sex in the sex industry, just very secretively, and their um, their families didn't know. The madam whose uh, son I talked to, Ginger, he didn't know that she was a madam until he was like 18 (laughs) (laughs) yeah they just thought that she was out doing some jobs for the pawn shop or whatever and but apparently she was like hobnobbing it up with like frank sinatra in vegas you know (laughs) yeah that's what she did before she came (laughs) up to wallace when she was like a high-end call girl there in vegas for like the rat pack guys
0: (laughs) where did a lot of these sex workers come from were they local girls did they all come from out of state how did they get to Wallace?
1: Mm-hmm. It was characterized as a circuit, and this was another aspect of um, the community's acceptance of it. There were no local women allowed, <laughs> it was definitely forbidden for you know, the local girls to sign up. <laughs> that was not something that community members were gonna tolerate or accept. So that was a part of the background check that they went through. So every woman who worked in the houses, they would go interview with the madam um, and they'd say, I wanna work for you. And they'd you know, talk through what the job involved. And then if they were old enough, they would go down to the sheriff's department and have their mug shot taken and have their background check run. Now, the mugshot shot part um, was actually done in uh, Nellie Stockbridge's photography studio, which was quite fancy and it was very classy. And that was what happened from, I guess, the early 40s up until 63 when um, Nellie retired. Um, And then after that, it was a traditional mugshot. Um, So they would go down there and then the sheriff's department would run the background check through the FBI. So the FBI was like knowing that this was happening and they would mark it as investigation or fingerprinted, mugshot it, mugged and released is how they would um, put the charge on their rap sheet. And then they would go to work. And if there were some like issue found, then, you know, a couple days later, they'd be kicked out or whatever. But that wasn't very common, it seemed. But so these rap sheets from the sheriff's department show where the women came from on the circuit. Most of them were coming from Montana, Nevada, other mining camps, other logging communities.
2: There's such good Uh, photos in this book, (laughs)
1: thank you yeah I wanted it to be that way again I wanted it to be really accessible I wanted the book to to perform a service for the community since there really wasn't anything written down and you know oral histories they die with the people who know the history and so I think that's why we privilege written history Mm -hmm. you know it's because I mean, there's a lot of reasons why, but that's, I think, a legitimate one. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, like, if we want our oral histories to live on, we need to write them down because what, yeah. what gets written down lives on. So on pages 120, 121, you can see some of these sheriff's office files on page 120. It shows uh, which houses that the women worked in and during what time periods. So about a fifth of them, maybe a qu- up to a quarter of them worked in more than one house when they worked in Wallace and many of them would work for a while and then go somewhere else and return. So like this woman, she worked in the Oasis, the Lux, and then back to the Oasis. And probably in theory, her rap sheet would show where she went in between those time periods. Some of the rap sheets reveal that the women even worked in places like Burley, Idaho, where mostly just Mormons there and <laughs> so pretty clear that even though the southern half of the state gets kind of like got kind of moralistic back then um especially like in 73 there was some there was a change in the in the legal structure and um and politically we had to shut down here for a little bit but there um there were in southern Idaho too <laughs> Uh and like some places in montana lasted almost as long as wallace did um like butte montana i think they still had a pretty large um house the, the dumas house that was one of the longest lasting houses brothels in the whole united states and actually the the oasis was too and uh i think there's a place in alaska that um it's a museum and and it maybe it was the longest lasting Cleveland, Washington was on the list. Dylan, Montana was on the list. Um, lots of girls from Butte for sure. Um, lots of Nevada, Winnemucca, lots of other mining towns in Nevada. So those would have been some of the main stops on the circuit. And there were several reasons for that. The men would tend to get kind of bored, you know, if they were kind of only being offered the same, options um I think the women also wanted to move on for those reasons too because they didn't want to kind of have to like deal with the same weirdos over and over now um (laughs) no in part in part that was one service that that they did perform for the community outside of my the you know typical mining and logging purpose of, of there just not being enough women around is if a man had a sexual fetish That would also be why they would want to go to the houses instead of, say, their wife or their girlfriend. So there were definitely a lot of different things that happened in the houses, especially before it was like, it's a lot more acceptable now to, you know, kind of admit to having a sexual fetish or wanting to do something outside the norm. But it sounded like you know sometimes these guys get reputations, and oh no, here he comes again. (laughs) But but they paid well, and then the other reason why, and this was a little more nefarious, or I guess I would say is kind of like um like negative maybe is they were worried that the women would develop a close relationship with one man in particular, and then have the risk of marrying him or like. Mm -hmm getting drawn out of the business and into the community. There were lots of women who married men in the community here. And there was this rule, supposedly like an unspoken rule that you were supposed to leave the town for a couple of years, at least before you came back and settled in. And so it was supposed to be this, you know, kind of excuse for people to not realize or not talk about that. But Some people didn't care at all. And everybody knew that, you know, so-and-so married so-and-so. And And then other people, it was, that stigma was too much for them. And they, they actually had to move out to escape it. Because especially if there was a broken marriage that had happened as a result of that, which did happen. And in one case, the women became friends afterwards. In another case, it was like a lot of, you know, negative emotion. So, um that was another reason for them for the moving around from the circuit some women also had pimps in other towns and so these pimps were the ones who were running them and you know kind of making them rotate and move from town to town but we didn't allow the pimps to be here in wallace if they were here we ran them out or did our best to try um we did our best to try not to have women who had pimps working in houses, but they, they definitely were. And some of them, you know, it's just a matter of terminology. They called them, you know, boyfriends, or they thought of them as boyfriends who they were just supporting. So there's kind of, there's a little more complexity there than, you know, like a sex trafficking narrative nowadays would have you like understand. There's been a lot of conflation recently between sex trafficking and sex work. And there's been a lot of demonizing of sex work. And I think there's good reason for that, but Uh, Nowadays, there's a lot more women in the industry doing it because that's exactly what they want to be doing. And people who are scared about trafficking or upset about it and, you know, advocating against it, I think kind of gloss over that idea.
0: It seems that you found that these women often had a lot more autonomy than we often give sex workers credit for, especially, I think, in these early days where we just assume like, oh, they did it because they didn't have any other choice. But did you find that more often than not, these women were choosing this profession more than they weren't? Or was it the opposite uh, in, in the case of Wallace?
1: That's a hard one to be able to figure out. That I think is a question that my research couldn't answer there. There was another question that I tried to answer that I wasn't able to answer either. And that was another thing that people said in order to justify the houses uh, continuing here was, was that they prevented rapes. And so that women weren't getting raped because the men could go upstairs because all the houses were on the second stories. Um, they could, men could go upstairs and they didn't have to, you know, uh, rape women, of course, we know that that's not the main motivation behind rape. And I'm sure that rapes did happen around here. And one, one woman told me that it did, that they did. I wasn't able though, in the police records to find, you know, records of rapes happening either before or after when, you know, the um, sex work um, existed here. And I do also think that it might be possible that um, the presence of, sex work here, made it less socially acceptable for someone to rape. Mm
2: -hmm. And so
1: I think that it might be the case that maybe there were some rapes that didn't happen just because it was seen as so socially unacceptable to do that because there was this narrative that you could go up and have what you needed in, you know, on the second story of the houses. So yeah, that was, that was another aspect of my research that I just, I couldn't, I couldn't sort out truth from fiction there. Um, I'm sure that women who got involved in the industry when they were too young and they were like manipulated into it. Um, I I heard some of these stories and this was like in other cities, but that was how they got into the industry. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like they were lured into it that way around here, but, um, but they would have worked here eventually. And I wanted to mention one other thing along the lines of of why it lasted so long. I think the other main reason was that these women, the madams in particular, were seen as contributors to the community life of the town in terms of their money and in terms of like the men would go up there to have social events. They were involved with political leaders. They were involved with business leaders. Um, And the business leaders were able to, for example, take a group of them out to their to their lake house and um, host parties or they were hosting parties upstairs. The um, the gyro club is this a men's club. They call themselves the friendship club. They would have a yearly Christmas party up there and there wasn't any sex that was happening up there, but they were just kind of surrounded by, you know, women There was, I I guess, one person had sex up there once. There's a story about that. But for the most part, it was just like all very, you know, this is the word that people use over and over again when they describe Wallace, like growing up here during that time, is it was just fun. Um, And so I think think that the way that the, the madams continued to justify their presence or have their presence justified was that they were seen as a central part of the life of the town And they contributed in that way. They gave a lot of money to a lot of events and they made these, they made the guys in town feel super special. Um, They made them feel like, you know, they were the center of the universe. (laughs) Uh,
2: Yeah. I was like (laughs) impressed by like the amount of charitable work that the madams did, like Ginger buying the uniforms for the school band and, you know, actually contributing to the viaduct around Wallace and like, (laughs) I feel like the yeah they
1: they did a lot for the kids, you know, the kids wouldn't have to sell raffle tickets to anywhere else. They could just like go up there and, and the, and they tipped really well. Everybody has a story about, you know, getting tipped by these, by the girls. So yeah, they made the kids and, and I mean, the madams knew get them young. (laughs) (laughs) They would like hire young, young men to go out and get their groceries for them. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, yeah. And then they would leave money or groceries for people in need who couldn't afford them. And they, they really did give a lot of money to the town. I mean, when that cash flow stopped, it it was noticeable. <laughs> yeah.
2: Wow. Well, you know, I, I'm curious, what has the community's response to your book been and your research been? Has it been largely positive, negative? How have people who've maybe tried to keep this secret, how have they responded to you?
1: I think most of the community has responded pretty positively to the research. I mean, people were in general, pretty forthcoming about their own uh, like the men were pretty forthcoming about their own stories. Cause like I said, the, the women made them feel special and touched a lot of people's lives. There's a few women who thought that, you know, maybe I needed to address more of the negative aspects for women who'd grown up here that side of the story was difficult to get. It was difficult to find people who would talk to me about that. And it was difficult to get them to like go on the record, but even they were still pretty like live or let live about it. Like there were a few women who were like, no, we should not have had that. It was bad for women. It h- had women here who grew up here, like thinking that they were supposed to do sexual acts that they didn't know about or shouldn't have. Or- and it had people from out of town thinking that women who grew up in Wallace were themselves, sex workers you know like when I went down to University of Idaho to go to school people would be like oh wall scrolls are here you know like that I was like um yeah that's not that's not what happened but okay fine you can call me a whore if you want um, <laughs> oh, so, so there were there were definitely some negative sides um, and people who saw it negatively a lot of people who were behind sort of the anti Movement were associated with churches or religion, but even the most kind of conservative people seem to seem to sort of allow it to live in this live and let live area. And as long as it wasn't interfering with their own lives, and they were still kind of okay with it. And I think that now, I mean, most of the businesses have a copy of my book in their display cases, so um, so I think that they're supporting it. I mean they're certainly supporting selling it. (laughs) So maybe there's people who aren't telling me what they really think. But but I think in general, um, the community has been pretty supportive of it. Um, I had huge demand for like when it first came out, um, I was so backed up. I had pre-sold and the publisher just couldn't even print them fast enough. And so that was really cool it was clear that there were people who wanted to know about the history who, um, just hadn't had a way to know about it before. And so I think the reception has been in general, like pretty positive. Yeah. Um, I've even continued to do some talks around town. Like even, I mean, it was published in 2017, but and it is now 2022. Yeah. Um, so like, this is, this is like a long tail here, but, uh, I spoke at the uh, Museum of North Idaho annual meeting last year. And then this year we put together an exhibit in the bottom of, in the basement of the Barnard Stockbridge Photography Museum. And it's a lot of the pictures from the book that I got from the Barnard Stockbridge collection, photography collection at the U of I special collections. And um, they're blown up to like huge life size. It's really cool. So that exhibit's going to be ongoing all summer there's a little, I think, sign that says adult content or tasteful adult content to so be aware. Um, but it really, the exhibit's really cool. It, it brings to life a lot of the research and photography that, um, that I did for the book. And so, so I spoke at that event and there was still a lot of people there and kind of checking it out. So yeah, if you guys come back to go up and, and, um, and go visit the Oasis Bordella Museum, you need to stop in at the Barnard Stockbridge Photography Museum. Um, It's in a church. (laughs) (laughs) That was a little controversial for a few people.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah, the Oasis is amazing. I I was fortunate to go with my father-in-law, actually. One of the coolest things I did in Wallace. And Every single day, there's something amazing to do in Wallace. It's not just just this, but like the Hiawatha Trail was nearby. And oh, I can't remember the firefighter's name. The Pulaski, the Pulaski Trail. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. The Pulaski Trail. The, yeah, the mining museum, as you've spoken about. There's so much to do in Wallace. It's such a cool little town. And Oh my gosh. And the center of the universe. Like you got to take a photo around, the, <laughs> around that. around yeah,
1: the, um, the museums this year teamed up together to do like a museum pass, um, only the nonprofit museums. So uh-huh. the, the Oasis Bordella museum has not incorporated itself as a 501 C3 yet. I don't know why they don't do that. They should, but <laughs> anyway, but so the Depot, you can get one pass for the Depot museum, the um the wallace mining museum and the barnard stockbridge photography museum so and yeah w- what you listed the um the rue of the hiawatha the trail of quarter lanes and the pulaski trail are definitely the big summer tourism draws here yeah. um and if you're into mountain biking i guess kellogg apparently has one of the best downhill courses um up at silver mountain i haven't done it yet but it's talked about pretty widely so. well,
2: thank you is there anything else you want to share with us
1: like when I started the book, I didn't really have an opinion on like should sex work be legal, and now I definitely think it should and um and I think that Wallace had a potential model for you know how it could be regulated, and um yeah, the brothel model is is a is a positive one I mean, the reason why and the reason why I say that is because um when you talk with sex workers nowadays, contemporary sex workers, they'll tell you that safety is like one of the biggest considerations, and so. If we could just have a way for everyone to do it safely, it would, it would be a lot better than kind of shoving it on the ground and pretending like it doesn't exist. And that was, that was one of what we did here in Wallace was, was we were just kind of like, yeah, you know, this is going to happen. So I guess we're just going to make it happen in the best way that we can and make it safe for everyone, Mm -hmm. which I think was a really pragmatic, like Western mining town sort of perspective. Mm -hmm people want to learn more, there's a, uh, a documentary that I made with um, Delaney Buffett. And it's available on a website called Film Shortage. It's filmshortage.com slash Wallace, and you should be able to find it. <laughs>
2: Perfect. We'll link it in the show notes.
1: And yeah, I haven't really touched my blog very much for a while. And I was thinking that I should probably go update it Um, like I said, I've been pretty burned out, so I've mostly just been doing events and not writing. Um, -hmm. but probably this summer I'll start up again, but yeah. Um, thanks so much for talking with me. Awesome.
2: Yeah. All right. Well, Dr. Heather Brandstetter, thank you so much for being on everybody. You can find this book in our gift shop at the old pen. Uh, that'll, that'll be in stock pretty shortly here. And, uh, we always end the show with a little saying, Heather, if we were to say, do your own time, how would you respond?
1: Guys, <laughs> um, that's a hard one. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> Don't get caught. Don't get caught.
2: That's great.
1: <laughs>
2: All oh, right. Man. Thank you so much for being on today. <laughs>
1: Yes. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> thanks, you guys. I I appreciate your uh, your time and and your attention. <laughs> yeah,
2: thanks. All right, we'll have to have you back on sometime when after your next project, because this has been yeah. So good,
1: so. Thank All you. Right.
2: Yeah. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Do your own time. Do
0: your own number.
2: All right. We'll talk to you next week.
0: If you enjoyed behind gray walls please rate review and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode not only do we get to hear your feedback about the show but it helps others find us as well if you're interested in finding out more about the podcast follow our facebook group at behind gray walls podcast we have a podcast instagram as well you can find us on instagram at behind
2: gray walls pod